0: Hey, welcome to Night School, and today I'm going to talk a little bit about emptiness. And obviously I can't illustrate emptiness with my words, considering I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And even if it's just a little bit, that little bit is something, therefore it's not empty. So there's no real way to illustrate emptiness with words, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about it. And in the West we have this idea of emptiness where it tends to be talked about as if it's the absence of something good. You think about somebody who tells you, Yeah, how you doing? I'm doing. I'm feeling a little empty myself. I'm feeling a little, a little empty today. That's always presented as a bad thing. I'm feeling empty today. Nobody responds to that and says, good. Oh, well, congratulations. Whereas, you know, there's an Eastern view of that, where it's like if if you were to say to somebody... I'm feeling a little empty today, they would say, excellent. And they would mean it. You know, they would actually mean that. Uh, Because there's this, it's a relative thing, this approach to emptiness, because we do tend to see it as the absence of something good in theory. You know, when we put words to it, we tend to frame emptiness as if it is a negation. It is negating the good. But in practice, that's not necessarily true. And no matter who you are or where you are, including in the West, especially in the West, there there are certain experiences with emptiness that we feel good about. But it does take a certain perspective or, or a certain—you have to be coming from a certain place, I would say. And I think the best way that I can explain this is eating— where the idea of an empty stomach is bad. If your stomach is empty, if your stomach is growling, you tend to think, oh, I'm hungry, I need to eat something. If I don't eat something, I'm gonna get a headache. I'm, I'm gonna feel, I'm gonna not feel good for sure. I'm not gonna have energy. Uh, you know, I might starve to death eventually. So the idea of having an empty stomach, we tend to think of that as a bad thing, but I think most people. In the West, at least, in in any kind of country where you have access to food, you know, where you aren't starving to death. Anybody who's not starving to death, I think, has had this experience where you binge eat late at night. You binge eat late at night, and the next day you wake up and you're bloated, you're not hungry, you don't want breakfast, you feel like shit. And so you don't eat for a while, and you can't really seem to shake that feeling. Because it takes a while. If you binge eat, it takes a while to actually feel hungry again. It takes a while for your stomach to actually feel empty but you go about your day the next day and you just you feel bloated you look in the mirror and even though you haven't really gained weight and you might see a little bit of bloat the fact that you feel that the fact that you feel that stomach full of just garbage makes you look in the mirror and you look awful even though you really don't look that much different than you did 24 hours earlier before you binge ate you still the fact that you feel a certain way makes you look a certain way in the mirror, mirror. it makes you appear a certain way, and you probably do have a little bit of bloatedness, but it's not going to be substantial unless you've been doing it for like two weeks, you know, but still, the fact that you feel that way, you know, you'll look in the mirror, I mean, it happened to me the other night, I ate way too late, I ate too much too late, and I looked in the mirror the next day, and I looked like I had gained 20 pounds, but that was just because I felt that way, because I felt so bloated, my entire... The way I saw myself became really distorted the next day, even though it wasn't real. Um, But back to that feeling of emptiness where, you know, normally when your stomach starts growling and you just, you you have that feeling, you're actually hungry. It's not that you want food, you need food. When you have that feeling and you can't get food, normally it's a bad thing especially if you've been eating in normal portions at a normal rate. But if you have been binge eating, the second that you feel hungry again is exciting. It's no longer something where you feel anxious or you need to eat right away. Instead, it feels like an accomplishment. Whereas in the other situation, when you get hungry normally, when you've been eating normally or with some you know reasonable and regular sort of diet, that feeling of hunger is much more like, oh God, I'm anxious and I need, I need to do something about this. And then you eat, and eating gives you that sense of accomplishment. Gaining you know, sustenance gives you a feeling of accomplishment. I did something. I ate a meal when I needed one. But when the, you're in the opposite situation where you've been binge eating, it's actually feeling hungry. It's that feeling of knowing your stomach is finally empty that gives you that feeling of accomplishment. So it's this reversal, and suddenly emptiness becomes the goal, whereas emptiness in other situations is something you're avoiding. Dietary emptiness, that's something that you are actively avoiding throughout the day. But it suddenly becomes this thing that you want, and it does feel oddly like an accomplishment when you hit that. And you can apply that way of thinking to your thinking, You can apply that way of thinking to your thinking. You can, though, where when you've just been indulging in in all of these thoughts, when your mind has been racing, when you've been overcomplicating things, when you do have a moment where you're not thinking anything, it does feel kind of like your stomach growling, but it gives you this sense of peace, like, oh, I'm finally done with all that stuff. My body finally processed that excess of shit that I consumed. And my body did something with it. My body did something with all that stuff that I put into it last night. And now I feel somewhat normal. And even though I don't really look any different than I did two hours ago, when I look in the mirror, I don't see a bloated freak. I see something resembling normal. I see something resembling normal now. Um, But the same thing can happen with your brain, where when you have been... When your brain has been overloaded, you know, and you're not looking at the world normal when you're you're feeling that way. When your mind is racing, when you're filled with thoughts, when everything's cycling around and you just feel like your brain is oversaturated in anxious thought. You know, the way you look at the world is distorted just like your body is when you look in the mirror after a night of binge eating. You do tend to distort the people around you, the situations you're in. The entire world just doesn't look right. But it's the same, it's it's basically the same world. And if you live that way all the time, just like if you binge eat for a month straight, yeah, you will start to get fat. And probably sooner than that, you know, it'll probably happen quicker than a month, but still, a month later, you're definitely going to be significantly fatter if you've been binge eating every night. And in the same way, if you let your mind get overloaded, if you let your mind get oversaturated after a month, let's say, you know, I think it works a little differently in this case, obviously, these examples aren't perfectly aligned, but, you know, let's say you just do that for a month, you let your mind just go haywire, you let it get oversaturated, you overindulge those feelings that don't make you feel very good and don't really make your surroundings seem very attractive. And after that amount of time, even though initially the world wasn't that much different, you were just seeing it differently, chances are your surroundings will actually have changed, objectively changed. Chances are your house will be messier. Chances are your relationships will not be as good You know, chances are you you could be doing things that are actively destructive. You could actually be, you know, doing destructive things that change the world world around you. You could be littering. You know, you could be actually, you know, making decisions or non-decisions that have a negative impact. That actually change the visual appearance of the world around you. And, And so in that way, you know, a month of binge eating will give you a gut. But a month of thinking that way, of, you know, indulging in these, you know, I don't even know what to say. I was going to say, like, binge thinking. I guess it sounds really dorky to put it that way. You're doing too much binge thinking. You ever think about the fact that you're doing too much binge thinking? Well, I can tell you that if you're thinking about the fact that you're doing too much binge thinking, that itself is like some, uh, you know, meta form of binge thinking. The number one sign that you're doing too much binge thinking is when you're thinking about the fact that you're binge thinking. You're thinking about the fact that you're binge thinking. But it's true. After a month, you know, even though at first it was just a distortion in the same way that one night of binge eating will make you look at yourself a little differently, even though you don't look truly that much different, if at all. You know, in in that way too, it's like the immediate effect of... Binge thinking. Now we're just saying it. I didn't want to say it. I joked about saying it. Now we're just saying it. Binge thinking. You have to accept it. Uh, but one night of binge thinking, you know, it'll make your imme- it'll distort your immediate surroundings. But after a month, you may actually see very real changes to your surroundings in the same way that you saw real changes to your body after a month. And the idea of doing that long term not just a month. I mean, a month is a short amount of time for a lot of people. A month is a short amount of time to overeat. It's a short amount of time to overthink. Because some people have been doing it their entire lives. And uh, you don't know any different. You just don't know anything other than that. And so, and part of that's you're, you're afraid of emptiness. You don't know emptiness but you're also afraid of it. And the reason you're afraid of it is because you don't know it. You've been thinking so much because you don't know how to empty your thoughts. You've been eating so much because you're afraid of feeling hungry. Even though you really have never felt truly hungry, you know, if you live in the Western world, uh, oh, I was hungry for one day because I waited five hours to eat. You know, and some people do experience real hunger. You know, I'm not saying they don't. Uh, even in the West. Even in the West, there's people that experience real hunger. They they do, of course. It's just that it's pretty rare. Uh, but, you know, people who have just been thinking nonstop don't know what it's like to achieve. And I do I do think it is an achievement. And that's the funny thing is, is we don't think of it that way. We don't think of it as a goal. We think of it as something to fear, to run away from by eating. In the same way that we fear emptiness of the stomach, we fear emptiness of the mind. And the difference between those things is we know what it takes to make your stomach empty. You just don't eat for a while. Just don't eat for a while. You fast. But with the mind, people don't really know how to empty it. And, you know, you can get into some, like, deep dissection where it's like, is it ever truly possible to empty your mind? Because, you know, anybody who meditates can tell you that the second that you stop thinking, sometimes you immediately start thinking about the fact that you're not thinking, and therefore you're thinking. And uh, it's the same for, you know, I've said it about ego death before, where there's, ego death is a real thing, but the second you realize that you've experienced ego death your ego just gets blown up like a balloon in that instant. The second you go, oh, I just experienced an ego death. The second you think that, your ego's back again and probably a little bit bigger than it was before, you know? Uh, So, you know, there are all these practices for how to empty your mind. There are all these books you can read. There's all these people you can listen to. And a lot of them will tell you the same thing. While some of them are, you know, snake oil salesmen, you know, a lot of them will tell you, well, you already have everything you need to know. You already have everything you need. Just sit there. And just just sit there. They'll teach you meditation. They'll teach you you know, certain mental activities, certain ways to explore your own consciousness. And they'll tell you, too, that you're going to feel an influx of thought. You might think that you're thinking more than you were before when you try to not think. And it's because you're suddenly aware of how much you're thinking. It's not that you're actually thinking that much more and you're probably not thinking more than you would otherwise but because you're suddenly paying attention to how much you are thinking it feels like you're thinking even more and it can be a pretty raw experience cuz you know you you start to be able to trace where thoughts come from and how they're linked and i had that experience when i started meditating where you know it sounds silly but your thoughts aren't entirely different from wikipedia where they are almost hyperlinked together and when you really sit there with your thoughts and they start to come a little bit slower you start to kind of be able to trace the tail end of them they're almost like little comets but they're all connected (laughs) they're almost like eh, they're almost like it's like more like a catapult you know flinging fireballs more than a comet but When you start to really trace where they're coming from, you see where a thought is linked to another thought that you just had. And it might not make any sense, but it's a lot like going through Wikipedia. And I do think that Wikipedia is some, you know, I I think it is some sort of illustration, I guess, to use that word again, of the way that our brains do think. And I think our brains are much more complicated But I do believe that Wikipedia in some way sort of maps out the way that we generate our thoughts based on our knowledge and experience. And in the same way that you'll go through Wikipedia and you'll click a link and it'll open up a new tab, and you may go to that tab right away or you may wait till you're done with the current thing you're reading, or you may open up a hundred tabs, and next thing you know, I mean you're just you can't even read the the title of each page at the top of your browser because you have so many different tabs open with different Wikipedia pages. And your thoughts are very much that way too, where you might go through your life and you've just been having one thought after the other, just one thought after the next, and your brain is very much overloaded. You have all these tabs and you might be able to focus on certain thoughts when you have a certain task at hand, like, I have to do this right now. But because you have so many tabs open, it's harder to focus on that one thing you have to do right now. And because of that, you might be doing something, but thinking about something else that you opened up. And it's been opened up, and you never closed it. And it, you might have opened it up like six years ago, but you just never closed it because you never finished reading it. Or you thought there was some reason you, you needed to reference it. You needed, you needed to refer to it. Even though you finished reading it, you left that tab open because you might need it for something and so it, your brain has been doing this hoarding of thoughts by leaving all these thoughts just open. And, you know, it's really been a, a luxury when you feel like you can close one because they go back to your childhood. So you've just had this buildup. And it's the same for really fat people. And as someone who was fat my entire childhood, I just didn't know any different. And it wasn't because nobody tried otherwise. It wasn't, you know, my mom would try to get me to eat healthy on occasion, but, you know, you'll see two parents sometimes in a restaurant trying to get their kid to eat something or to do something, and the efforts of both those parents does nothing. The kid is just not going to do it, and the parents aren't going to force him. You know, the parents can't force it down their throat. Uh, So you, you see two parents doing that. So you look at, like, a single mom cooking dinner for the kid, and eventually the kid's stubbornness, which I have plenty of, is going to win out. And so it's going to be hamburgers. It's going to be pizza. It's going to be chicken tenders. Just a a world of chicken tenders. I can't believe how many chicken tenders I ate growing up. You know? Breaded chicken tenders. Uh, I don't even know how I, how I put up with eating that many chicken tenders. It was just my go-to. If you go to a restaurant and you don't like anything on the menu, you just... They got, it, they got chicken tenders, most likely. There's something about kids and chicken tenders. Uh, but, uh, you know, you grow up that way, and it's just what you know. You know, it's no different than, you know, it's just, you know that what you know is to eat stuff that isn't good for you and to eat more than you need to. And you just don't know otherwise. It's a habit. But thinking is very much the same way, where you just you've kept all these things open, you've kept your brain overloaded and overwhelmed, and you just don't know any different. You don't know how to break that pattern. Uh, but uh, you know, and in that way, it's like you're you're constantly running away from that emptiness, and you don't even realize that's what you're doing. You don't realize, like, oh, I'm going to eat, you know, more chicken tenders than I need to. I'm going to go to Claim Jumper and eat the whole the whole plate of chicken tenders, the family-size, you know, serving of chicken tenders. I'm going to eat all of them. And it's not because you're thinking, like, oh, I'm, if I don't eat these, I'm going to feel empty. Even though people will say that, even though people will talk about, you know, people who eat for emotional reasons, which I don't think I did. I just think things tasted good and they were available, so why not? You know, uh, that was kind of my approach. But, you know, some people do obviously eat to escape a feeling of emptiness because they are afraid of that. They are afraid of sitting with that feeling. But I don't think you have to be some sort of, like, ascetic. I don't think you have to be some monk who eats, you know, one serving of gruel a day. I don't think you have to be someone who doesn't think at all in order to achieve some sort of equanimity, or some level of balance, you know, and and I mean, I think balance requires you to not just sit in emptiness all the time. I think you do need to accept the fact that you are going to think you do need to eat, and Taking, you know, a a better approach to those things, learning what works for you, what works for other people, finding a groove in that. And, you know, some people will tell you to meditate. And there are a bunch of different ways you can do that. And I've talked a lot about meditation on this show And I spent about four days not meditating recently. I may have meditated like once or twice, like half-assed meditation, whatever that is. What's a half-assed meditation anyway? But it was about four days there. And I was going through kind of, you know, what might be described as catabasis. My friend Miles likes to use that term. And catabasis refers to sort of a voluntary descent. It's sort of a voluntary descent into, I mean, the actual term refers to a descent into the hell realms, or realm. I'm, I'm personally a believer in the multiple interconnected rooms that make up the hell realm, uh, and each room is a realm. Uh, <laughs> each room is a realm. Uh, but, you know, he, he, my friend Miles will refer to catabasis. And it's sort of a voluntary descent. And it's a term, too, that the military has used. I think it either means a march to the coast or from the coast. I think it's to the coast. But it's something you can do as sort of a discipline exercise. It's when you sort of give up your own discipline. This is how I apply it. Uh, Going into a mode of catabasis is sort of, I'm going to Let my discipline slip a little bit in some way. And you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful with that because, for example, like I'm not going to drink during a period of catabasis. I'm not going to go, oh, you know, I'm going to let my discipline slip and I'm going to descend into the hell realms. So that means indulging in everything, you know, but I will eat more not necessarily anything exceptionally unhealthy, not a whole plate of claim jumper chicken tenders or anything like that, but I will overeat a bit. I will eat later in the night. I will stay up later than I should or could, and uh, I will generally feel not as physically and mentally good as I prefer, but it's with the full intention of coming out of that because a voluntary saunter into catabasis needs what is called anabasis, which is the ascent. If catabasis is the descent, anabasis is the a- ascent. The ascent! Uh, and anabasis, interest- interestingly, too, is used in the military to refer to, I believe, the march inland. I may be getting those opposite. One refers to the the march to the coast, one refers to the march inland But it's not a true—the exercise of catabasis, because I think there's some, you know, forms of catabasis where you're just on the slippery slope down to a permanent hell. You're just letting your life slip through your fingers. But it's not a real exercise if you don't have the intention of anabasis, which is ascending back out. And it's something that I've done over the last few years, and I haven't always thought of it in those terms— And I forget about those terms, and I was actually explaining this to Miles the other day, and he was like, oh yeah, catabasis, what you're doing is, you know, entering, you know, catabasis. And I was like, oh yeah, that term, something I'm very familiar with, and it's a great term for this. And it's very similar to tantric, you know, exercises on the tantric path, you know, in the same way that the tantra will allow for you to ritualize if not negative behaviors, impure behaviors. And it's not based all around that, but there's a reason why the Tantra incorporates those things. Indulgences, forms of thinking and behavior that you otherwise wouldn't consider pure, especially in a Buddhist context. And so the the Tantra allows for these things as well. And... It's basically this idea of, I'm going to sink a little bit lower intentionally because it's within my control. And by doing that, getting out of that is also within my control. But that's where you have to be careful, because I think with some people they'd be like, well, I'm just going to party. I'm going to party. And speaking for myself, while I have certain ways that I will descend... I know that I can't include certain indulgences within that. I'm not going to drink when I do that. I'm not going to, you know, use drugs. I'm not going to think too negatively. I'm not going to let rage or, you know, any vitriol in. But I am going to kind of, you know, just get into a zone. I'm going to kind of shut the world out. I'm gonna get I'm you know might accept a little bit of negativity or down feelings. I might overeat, I might stay up too late, I will not meditate. I will continue to work out and do things like that, because those are things that I don't want to lose. I don't want I don't want those to slip. There are certain handrails you wanna maintain. So you wanna be very careful about what you include in that process. And you wanna from the very beginning include anabasis as the opposite bookend to that experience where you're going to ascend out of it and hopefully very quickly hopefully you'll just you know for me it's I I was kind of going through a few days where I was like I'm going to allow myself to just feel a certain way and not fight it and it's going to remind me why I live a certain way normally now Because that's sort of what it is. It's sort of creating contrast. You're basically creating contrast. Because if you've been going for six months and you've been waking up at 5 a.m. every day, working out first thing, meditating, eating perfectly for six months, for most of that six months, you might think, this feels perfect and I don't see myself ever wanting to get out of this. Why would I ever change this? Why would I ever change this? but you will have a day where suddenly your your momentum starts to dip and then the next day you feel it dipping a little more and you don't feel like stopping what you're doing but you do feel like you need some kind of contrast or disruption to remind you how good it feels to get back on track again so you need a little bit of that catabasis to get yourself back you know and then and then to go through that anabasis again because it's a reminder of how good it feels and it could be something like just getting enough sleep. Maybe you're willingly going to get a little less sleep than you would normally get. And then a week later, when you're getting a full eight hours again, remind yourself, be aware of how good that feels to actually get that much sleep. And so it's, it's about creating some element of contrast in your life. And, uh, you know, and that requires inner fire, You know, I think you have to have what people would call an inner fire, which is interesting because going back to the idea of emptiness, emptiness is sometimes described as a certain luminosity or inner radiance. You'll see that in Buddhism where there is a sensation of, of luminosity that is associated with emptiness. And, you know, there's a clarity to that. And what's interesting about that, though, is to me, luminosity is something. Even if you don't know where it's coming from, it is something. And, you know, one of the the main producer of luminosity, the producer of light, is fire. And we think about inner fire. We think of it as this drive, this ambition. And we tend to associate it with... A certain level of aggress- aggression, the aggressive side of fire, the side of fire that is pushing and growing and expanding—that that tends to be how we think about our inner fire. It is our motivation. It's what pushes us to do things. You know, when you uh, get all aggro about working out and how it's you against the world, and you know, there's a tendency to think of that as this inner fire. But you can also think of that inner fire as just light. You can think of it as just luminosity. And you can think of it as something that is fairly static. You know, you, can, you know, static, Maybe maybe the flames are flickering no matter what, but you think of it as staying in one place. It is something that you can control. And the idea of fire itself is just... I've been thinking about that a lot lately, because I was thinking about the concept of inner fire and how that's something that we all kind of just accept... Even though we all know there isn't a flame inside of our body, we all just kind of accept the concept. It makes sense to us. And it's not surprising that it makes sense to us when you think about the fact that fire is everywhere. It's the sun. You know, there's this external fire that produces all of the light on our planet. So our planet, you know, even though we don't think of the bright... You know, when you wake up and it's morning and you see that it's not dark, you don't necessarily think of that as... Oh, the fire created this. The reason why I can see the trees out my window at 9 a.m. opposed to midnight is because fire is allowing me to do that. But yet it is. It's the fire of the sun that allows you to see the world clearly during daylight hours. But you don't think of that as like, oh, shit, like the flames of the sun are licking at my bedroom window. You just think, oh, it's light out yet it's still produced by fire, this huge ball of fire. And then you think about the fact that there's fire inside of the earth, allegedly. You know, the sun isn't alleged. We can all see it, more or less. You can't stare at it. They tell you not to stare at it. I've never met anybody who's gone blind from staring at the sun, by the way. I've heard that that happens, but I've never met somebody. You'd think you would have met somebody. It's so easy to do. It's there all the time. The sun is there all the time, and we're told that you'll go blind if you stare at it, but you've probably never met somebody who's gone blind from staring at the sun. That just doesn't seem like a statistical probability to me. I feel like we would all know more than one person who's gone blind from staring at the sun if it were that easy. As if, it were, if it were truly that easy, You just all you have to do is look up at it for too long. I feel like we know enough people who would do that. I feel like everybody knows somebody. Maybe I'll do it just to prove prove that it is statistically probable that you know somebody. I'll become the person that everybody I know knows who went blind from staring at the sun. But anyway, you know, there's nothing alleged about the sun's fire. We see it. But there's allegedly this fire inside of the earth... There's this molten lava, and it's interesting that that's the energy source that creates land. You know, it produces, lava hits water and cools and creates rock, and that's the reason why we're all able to stand on the earth. And then stuff grows because, you know, stuff grows. No, but stuff grows because sunlight helps it. So it's the land that stuff grows on is produced by this you know, fire inside of the earth that occasionally escapes through holes and hardens into land, and then matter gets on that land, and then it requires the sun to grow. So there's this interesting process where it's got fire at both ends. It's fire that creates the land, and then the stuff that grows on the land requires this fire from up above. But it is interesting to me that, you know, we have this fire up above and then this fire within the earth, And then we create smaller little fires on the earth so that we can keep warm. And then we're motivated by this idea of an inner fire inside of us. Which in all of this is the only thing that doesn't appear to be real. The fire of the sun is real. The fire of lava, of, you know, magma, whatever it is at the center of the earth. We don't know what's at the center of the earth. Uh, But, you know... This idea that there is this, you know, mass of molten magma inside the earth. We know that there's fire that comes out of the earth, liquid fire. And we know that we can create these little fires to keep us warm. And it coincidentally was our first technology. Maybe. I mean, it seems like it was. Uh, And we still use it to this day. But so you have real fire in all of these instances. But then when it comes to, you know, The human, uh, just the human drive, we have this metaphorical fire that we refer to, but we do generate heat, you know, we do generate heat and we also fear fire more than anything and we fear global warming now more than anything, many people do at least, which is funny considering how surrounded by heat and fire we are. It's like, oh, there's this idea that we ourselves, through our behavior, are influencing the world to get warmer, yet we have a giant ball of fire that's shining down on us all the time, and the center of the earth is fire, yet we're worried as the middlemen between these two things, as the people who are walking the crust of this earth that is soaking up the heat of the sun's fire and is being heated from within by this magma, we're worried that we're the ones who are causing the planet to be hot, too hot. And maybe we are. You know, maybe we are. And we do produce heat ourselves. But this is also a great example of the as above, so below idea that's so popular in so many different philosophical and spiritual and just really, it's just everybody's going to Find it in their own way. Everybody's going to see how that process works in their own way. As above, so below. The larger processes mirror the smaller processes. And in the same way that there's this large sun up in the sky uh, that produces fire that sustains us, we will create our own little fires and build our homes around them. The fireplace is the center of the house. You know, it will simulate that. You know, we'll create heating systems that are a simulation of that fireplace, what that fireplace did for us. We will, you know, heat our food with that. So there is this as-above-so-below process that plays out, just with fire itself. And then we see that in ourselves, even though it apparently doesn't exist. Even though we generate heat, we don't necessarily have a flame inside of us. The insides of our bodies are very hot, but there's apparently no flame there apparently they haven't found it yet they haven't found the flame inside the human body but we think about it all the time and we casually accept the phrase inner fire but our association with inner fire i feel is one dimensional one dimensional where it doesn't have to be where an inner fire could be something peaceful you know it doesn't have to be that thing that makes you a competitive athlete It doesn't have to be the thing that pushes you. It could also be the thing that makes you sit still, because that's what you do around a real fire. When there's a campfire, some people dance around it. But most of the time, people just sit around it. They just sit, and they're transfixed by it. And I think you can think about your own inner fire the same way. And I think fire is one of those things that it isn't empty because it is something You know, it's visually something, it's really fucking hot, it takes up space, but yet when it's gone, there's nothing. And that's interesting to think about. I mean, I've taken that for granted my whole life, that when a fire goes out, there's just nothing. There's smoke, but the smoke isn't the fire. The smoke isn't, the fire didn't transform into smoke. The fire didn't transform into ash. The fire was halfway in between whatever was burning and everything around it. If that makes sense, maybe not. It makes sense to me. Um, but you know the fire, it was sort of this thing that took up so much space to the point where you know, you didn't even want to touch it. You can't touch it. You know, there could be a stool sitting in a room that takes up just as much space, but you can set things on it. You can sit on it. You can get within centimeters of it and not have to worry that stool isn't going to hurt you. But with a fire, it might take up the same amount of space as a footstool, but if you get too close to it, it's and you're not, you know, you're going to get really fucking hot and it's going to hurt. If you put things in it, it's going to burn them. You can't sit on it. So fire takes up this space, but yet it can just disappear in an instant. And it is, But it's also this weird transient thing where it wasn't there before and it's not there after. And I might sound like some teenager who's on mushrooms for the first time saying this. I don't know. Uh, I'm neither of those things. Uh, But this is what's interesting to me about it is just that you take it for granted. You take it for granted that fire is such an overwhelming thing and it just disappears in an instant. You pour water on it. You throw some stuff on it that smothers it, you know, and it's just gone. But while it's there, you can sit with it, and you don't need anything else. When you're sitting staring at a campfire, you don't need anything else. It's the most interesting thing in the world, just watching the flames. You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to overthink about it, that's for sure. When you're watching flames dance, you're not even really analyzing it. You're not, you're not staring at, like, each individual flame. I mean, you can do that. You can be like, oh, look at that over there. Look at that ember. Look at that ember. You can do that, but you don't have to. You can be just totally absorbed in it, and it does clear people's minds. It does kind of prompt this sudden meditation in people. If you've been sitting around a campfire, people will go, you know, long periods of time without needing to say a word. And nobody feels like they need to, you know, nobody feels that awkward need to fill the space with their words because everybody is just transfixed by the fire. There's an understanding. And in that way, you know, fire does represent some kind of emptiness to me. It allows for it. And I think your inner fire can do that as well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Buddhism there's this discussion of achieving inner luminosity or inner radiance. And the fact that the physical luminosity we experience in the outside world is produced one way or another by fire. Or electricity. Or, you know, basically this—but it all comes from fire. You know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, this idea of, oh, bright, light luminosity is something that is produced in our real everyday world by fire. And yet it's it's thought of as tranquil or peaceful. Things we don't typically associate with an inner fire. Uh, it's just, it's interesting to me. and I, But I think you can learn how to, you know use your inner fire to achieve some kind of peace or to clear your mind. You know, whether you actually meditate or not doesn't matter. And I don't want to get into a a meditation rant here. But I think you can use that. And in the same way that sitting in front of a real campfire will clear everyone's mind who is gathered around it, I think if you think of that inner fire in a similarly stabilizing way, you can have that same result at any given time. And I think you should also, you know, rethink what emptiness is, too, because if you're running from emptiness all the time, I think you have to redefine what emptiness means. And imagine, you know, go back to the example I used at the beginning. Just imagine that you've been eating nonstop for the past 10 hours, and it's going to take another 10 hours, 12 hours for you to feel hungry again, because sometimes that's how long it takes I mean, I, I do some degree of intermittent fasting. I used to do the 16 hours. I'm on more of a 14-hour schedule now. And that's about how long it takes for me to get hungry. Maybe part of that's that I've been conditioned that way. Because I remember I used to think that, oh, I have to wake up and eat right away no matter what. One of the first things I have to do every day is eat. And realizing that you can actually go four hours. You can actually go, you know, a, a chunk of time. You know, wait a few hours before you go to bed and wait a few more hours after you wake up and include sleep in that process and you'll realize that, oh, I actually don't feel truly hungry until, you know, a, you know, a good ways into my day. And it's a really good feeling of hunger. It's a really good feeling of emptiness. And if you did load up the night before, It really feels like an accomplishment when your stomach actually demands food again. Because it certainly doesn't feel like an accomplishment when you stuff yourself and you don't feel hungry for 24 hours. I've had that. I've gone an entire day without feeling hungry before. And there's always peanut butter involved. And peanut butter stays with you. I love peanut butter, by the way. And I I, I don't recommend anybody cut it out of their life. You know, claim jumper has this plate that they'll give you, and it's it's a, a giant bowl of peanut butter. It's like a uh, a mixing bowl filled with peanut butter, and you can just eat the whole thing with a with a butter knife. Uh, you have to ask for it, though. It's on claim jumper's secret menu. You say, "I'll have the uh, the bowl of peanut butter." But really, any time that I binge eat, peanut butter is within reach. A lot of it. There's always, whether I'm eating it chunky peanut butter straight, or whether I'm smearing it on saltines, I mean, I, I'll smear peanut butter on a protein bar. You know, I'll, I'll do things like that. And, but anytime that I have that feeling where the next day I don't get hungry for a long time or never, there's always peanut butter involved, and you can really feel the peanut butter the next day. You can just feel it inside of you. Just like a sm- you'll burp peanut butter. I mean, I- I've spent entire days tasting peanut butter that I ate 24 hours earlier. But once you're through it, once you know your body has gotten through that peanut butter, once it feels empty again, it's an incredible feeling. It's incredible to know that your body processed all of that, and you're back to square one. And you can do it all over again. You can do it all over again. Just get that butter knife out and buy a whole new jar of peanut butter. And, uh, you know, you can do it all over again or not. But that feeling of once you get hungry again, that is a desirable emptiness. But you're coming from a place of having binge eaten. And you approach your brain the same way. You can approach thinking the same way where emptiness of thought can be an accomplishment, but first you have to recognize that you've been thinking too much, and you have to develop processes for how to clear your mind. And all those people who try to teach these things are right, in my experience, that you have that process already. You know how to clear your mind or maybe you maybe you don't you've forgotten it let's put it that way you've forgotten how to clear your mind, but you don't have to buy something new you don't actually have to listen to anybody, but you do have to relearn how that works. you know your stomach will just do it, and your metabolism can get gunked up. you know if you do it too much, you know it'll take longer for you to feel hungry again i guess i don't I don't know how the stomach works. I don't know how digestion works. Uh, But, you know, your body will do it for you. But unfortunately with your mind, you just, there's something that you just lose over time. But it is there to begin with. And they all say that. And it sounds cheap. It sounds like they just don't want to explain it when you hear that, oh, you already have it. I can't teach you anything. You already have it. You know, there's those classic stories of Zen monks being approached Uh, you know, Zen masters being approached by students who are just like, teach me. And the Zen master's just like, I can't teach you. And it seems like this weird, coy joke, which it is. But the reality is, you know, you do have to, something has to be activated inside of you in order to deactivate. And that's just the, you know, the sort of catch-22, the contradiction of it all but accepting that that itself is not even a contradiction. It just seems like one is part of the process for working all of these things out. Realizing that something has to be activated again for you to deactivate. Understanding that those two things aren't mutually exclusive. They're not contradictory. And realizing that you have the capacity to understand both of those things simultaneously and not just to understand them, but allow them to work. Allow them to work simultaneously. I think that is part of it. In the same way that, you know, fire is something. It takes up space. It'll burn you. Yet nothing disappears quite like fire not even water disappears like fire you got to do something with water you know eventually it'll evaporate but you got to put it next to fire you got to heat it up but you know if you're just trying to get rid of water and that is interesting not to get once again not to be a teenager tripping balls for the first time but it is funny that you know in order to get rid of fire you have to pour water on it in order to get rid of water you have to put it close to fire how they do have that relationship um but uh you know it's there is that idea of the fire where you know fire is itself like seemingly contradictory in a lot of ways. Fire is seemingly contradictory in a lot of ways. And it is, and, and, you know, even our approach to it is very contradictory, where it's the thing that keeps us alive, it keeps us warm, it cooks our food, yet we fear it more than anything. So we desire fire more than anything, but we fear it more than anything. And we use it as the ultimate example of life and that lust for life, where, you know, you need it, you, you need light and you need heat in order to stay alive, in order to grow and we don't use, nobody talks about their inner ice nobody says oh you know you just need to activate that inner ice now you know what you need to get the job of your dreams you need to tap into that inner ice no they say inner fire but yet we fear that we're terrified of fire yet it's also one of the most desirable things But being able to wrap your brain around all of that and not see it as one or the other, I think, is an important part of the process of embracing or, if not embracing, accessing emptiness. Because if you can access it, you realize that you don't have to embrace it. You don't have to hold on to it. You can just access it. And you don't have to work that hard to get it once you realize that it's there. And sometimes people hear emptiness and they think of nihilism. They think, oh, if uh, emptiness is the true nature of reality, then nothing matters. You know, nothing—if if, if no meaning is sustained, you know, in the—you know, if if, uh, if there's nothing that, you know, sustains meaning in life, you know, nothing matters— And that's just an excuse to self-destruct or do nothing in a nasty, negative way. To live a dirty, unclean lifestyle. Whatever whatever nihilism is to you, it's funny how it's almost always so full of something. And you could say it's full of shit, but I would just say it's full of something. Anytime someone claims to be a nihilist or claims to be consumed by nihilism or is living a life that is justified in some way by nihilism, they are so full of something. And that nihilism that they claim is meaningless and empty is heavier and more cluttered with stuff than almost anything else. And I know my experience with nihilism was the epiphany that, oh, if nothing matters, that means I have a full range of motion and I can do anything for its own sake, including healthy things. What would be more rebellious... You know, what would be a more rebellious decision in a nihilistic state than taking care of yourself just for the hell of it? That was my realization. Realizing that I had a full range of motion. Things being meaningless didn't mean that I had to succumb to that meaninglessness by embracing this negative meaning. Because that's often what happens. Someone says, it's all meaningless, and that means I'm going to choose to take this negative, destructive meaning out of it. And you're still embracing this meaning. But realizing that, oh, I have a full range of motion, and nihilism could include the good, the healthy, just for the hell of it. But once you start doing things that are healthy or are good, you start to find the meaning again. You know, you start to experience meaning, and I think meaning is something you experience. You can't decide to have meaning. I think it is just the natural product of certain behaviors. I think it is something that gets activated. But it's something that was already there, and that's the whole idea of activation, is that when something becomes activated in you, it was something that was already there. So it's not that your life lacked meaning, it had meaning that just wasn't activated. And people will tell you there are certain behaviors, there are certain decisions you can make, that will activate activate that meaning. They will activate that meaning in your life. Uh, And that's just one of the funny things about it, is that when you're in a truly nihilistic state, you realize that you can do anything. And so doing things to better yourself is the ultimate form of rebellion. But that rebellion will actually align you with a far greater range of things, and why would you not want that? Why would you not want to be aligned with more things? You know, because you can still be independent within that alignment. But being independent for independence sake becomes less important to you. That inner fire becomes less about competing. Me against the world. Oh, my inner fire, my drive. I'm going to make more free throws than anybody else in the league. And that stuff is cool. That's good. Being competitive is great. I'm pro-competition. But you realize that that inner fire isn't just an excuse to assert your independence or to prove how much better you are than everybody. That inner fire can also be a form of emptiness and a good emptiness. Because just like nihilism you know, gives you a full range of motion toward the good as well as the bad, Emptiness gives you the exact same access to the good as well as the bad. And you might think of, I'm feeling empty, as a negative statement, but I'm feeling empty could be the start of doing literally anything, especially feeling good. (laughs) ¶¶